0: Ladies and, good. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, whenever you're ready, please go ahead and put your headsets on. That's how you'll be able to hear the microphones. Thank you very much.
1: Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Is it working? Can you all hear me? Yep. Um, we have the distinct pleasure. This is Education Day, and... Um, we're looking forward to an amazing day of what we hope will be successes both in this room and around the COP as well as um, in the Ministerial Education Minister's meeting. Um, let me make sure this is working for everybody. Yep, great. Uh, it is my incredible pleasure to introduce uh, Bertrand Picard, who is a Swiss explorer among other things, a psychiatrist which at this point of the COP we all need. So. Um, We're glad you have that additional characteristic and an environmentalist. um, Along with Brian um, Jones, he was the first person on the planet to complete a non-stop balloon flight around the globe in a balloon called the Briefling Orbiter 3, is that correct? Um, I really could go on and on about his extraordinary accomplishments, uh, but we are honored to have him with us today, and I'll turn the mic over you have one. Great, thank you.
2: Thank you very much, and uh, good morning to everyone. Just to check, is it working? Okay, because it's quite strange experience to speak in the microphone that makes absolutely no noise. (laughs) We're here to speak about education, about climate change, and I think there are so many ways to treat this topic. First thing, of course, education in general is crucial for humankind. There is no doubt about it. Now, if we believe that we will solve the problems of climate change with education, I think we will come too late. Because the IPCC is showing that we have 10 years to decarbonate half of our emissions and that we have to be absolutely carbon neutral in 2050. Education of children who are in school today We'll bring them to be maybe heads of states or CEOs of big company in 30 years when they will be 40. And in 30 years, it's going to be too late. Which means that education is probably not what is going to save us on the short term. It's going to save us in the long term. And what do we have to do in between? Well, in between, I think we have to educate the children educate the students in order for them to be actors of the change even before they are elected in political level or in corporate level. So, of course, we have to educate them. And we need this action of the youth, as we have seen in the past, when so many governments have taken measures because of the pressure of the youth. In, just to give an example, in Switzerland, the climate emergency has been declared in several cantons, several states of Switzerland, because or thanks to the climate strikes. So the power of the youth is extremely important. And now comes the question of how should we educate children, about the topic of climate change. Because it is not so obvious. What is climate change first? And here I believe that the education given in the different regions of the world is going to be very different. Because the states or the countries who are climate deniers are going to educate their children. That's for sure. But they are not going to educate the children to understand human cause climate change, they're going to educate them much more on the natural cause of climate change, denying the human cause of it. So I believe that the first value of education is to show all the different angles of a problem. If we educate children about all the different theories, of climate change, the children are clever enough to see which parts they have to keep. And for example, I believe that even if we are convinced of the human origin of climate change, it is not a reason to say that it's the only thing that has to be taught. Why that? Because they need to understand the arguments of the opponents. And this is sometimes something that we forget. Teaching to children is not just give them a theory that they have to put in their head or their heart. We need to tell them about the opposite theories, about the people who think differently, in order for them to be be able to understand what they have to reply if they're in front of a climate change denier. So this is something really important. Show all the angles of the topic. Then it's important also to speak about the solutions. How are we going to solve the crisis? And here, there are a lot of other theories. Climate change, pro or against, it's two angles. But then you have all the different solutions for climate change. You have the people who say that high tech will save the world, that we can put nanoparticles in the stratosphere to cool down the atmosphere and compensate the effect of the global warming. I believe it is crazy. I believe it's mad, because we are disturbing nature twice. We're disbalancing nature twice, once by warming it up and then by cooling it down artificially. But nevertheless, if we educate children about what is happening in the world and all the solutions, we have to teach that some people believe that it is important or possible to do it. Then you have the complete other theory that we will save the world by reducing technology, by reducing economical growth by reducing mobility, reducing the standard of life. Of course, this is something that frightens a lot of people. I believe that economically speaking, it will bring us to a social chaos because if you reduce the economy, you will reduce, of course, the salaries, the pension funds, the social security, and have no idea of how such an utopic and idealistic view can be translated into quality of life for the citizens. But nevertheless, we have to explain to the children that this theory also exists, that people think like that. And the children are always able to understand the fundamental value of everything they see. And they're able to take or reject because they are smart. And I think we forget the fact that children are smart. We talk to children in a way like if they were little kids not understanding anything. And we have a childish language for them. But let's remember when we were 10 years old, we did not accept to have a childish childish language speaking to us. We believed we were grown up at 10. So we have to treat children as adults, as people responsible. And uh, the third, maybe, angle that we can show is between degrowth and the solutionist high-tech solving. There are maybe a lot of other ways to do. The, The path I prefer is the path of qualitative growth. It's the path when we create jobs, and make industrial profits by replacing what is polluting by what is protecting the environment. It's what I call qualitative growth. Now, if I'm a teacher educating children, of course, I would speak about it. And maybe I would say that it is my preferred option, and I would explain why. But I would speak about the climate change deniers, and I would speak about degrowth. I would give the children everything on the table. And then there is the third part of education that I value very much. It's allowing the children to ask questions and to challenge what they have heard. And this is not enough the case. So often we tell to children, you have to believe what we say. You have to take it as it is. You are too young to contradict the teacher. And if they ask questions, say, no, no questions, take it as it is. I was never educated like that. I was, the, I was lucky enough to be in a family of explorers where I could ask all the questions I wanted. And sometimes I got answers and sometimes people told me we don't know. And this is fantastic for children. To hear that an adult does not know. Why is it fantastic? It's because it shows that there are still many things to be discovered. There is still so much to be understood. And in that way, we can create the pioneering spirit. We can create the state of mind of the explorer. We can stimulate the curiosity of children who are going to say, life is going to be interesting because there is still so much to be understood and so much to be discovered. In that sense, I believe uh, that such an education is a huge incentive for children to act, to be taken seriously. It's a huge incentive also to get out of this climate anxiety and this climate depression that is caused by the feeling of having no power This feeling that the problem is so big that we cannot understand it and that we cannot solve it. And this makes it paralyze us. And you have now a new psychiatric syndrome in our world, which is clearly a climate-induced anxiety and depression. To get out of it, we need to educate children in their heart and in their brain. In the way that we have discussed here. And I think this will push to action because when they will act, they will know why to act, how to act, where to act, and with whom to act. In other ways, it will bring education again at the level where it has to be. Education is not only to transmit a knowledge, it is to transmit an experience. With this, I'm happy to share this moment with you, and if you have any questions, more than welcome to contradict me, to show other parts maybe of this topic that I might have forgotten. And I don't know if we have time, a couple of minutes for discussion, okay? So don't hesitate to jump into the discussion. Yes the headset, otherwise I won't understand you, (laughs) thank you.
0: Okay, can you hear me?
2: Wonderful. Okay.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for your comments. My question is, what role do you think connecting children to nature emotionally plays in their climate education?
2: I agree fully, uh, completely. Maybe it's something I should have added to the discussion uh, before. Absolutely. Uh, Of course, it's easier in Scotland than to do it in uh, Shanghai or New York City. And uh, maybe this is why it is so important, absolutely. Put people in nature. Yeah, I've forgotten that and I will add it for next time.
0: Thank you, yes, the research shows that we don't uh, learn what we need to know about climate change if we're not emotionally connected to nature to begin with. It's the first building block, so thank you.
2: Absolutely.
1: I have my own question, which is, um, since Earth Day and everyone here are in the climate education business, um, many of our, uh, my own community, the environmental community, which is hyper-focused, of course, on fossil fuels, um, are concerned that investing in education will take too long. I'm wondering what your response is.
2: Yes, it's exactly what I said before you put your helmet on when I started. Um, It is absolutely true that... Education will, or let's say if we educate children now, it will be too late for when they come to key decision level uh, positions, in politics or in uh, big companies. And we have to start to act much before these children are in a high position. Uh, So education will come too late. But if we educate children now, there will be a force to push the adults of today who are in key positions to act and I gave the example of the climate strike that we had in Switzerland, which made some Swiss states, the cantons, decide and declare an official climate emergency because the children were in the street and the politicians said, well, these guys, they will be voters in a couple of years. We have to be nice to them, Uh, which is a way to make things move.
1: (laughs) It works in democracies anyway. Thank you. Does anybody else have any other questions?
2: And you know, also sometimes the governments would like to act. They know they have to act. And they are afraid of the reaction of the population if they take measures in favor of the environment that might be a little bit a constraint for the population. So they wait until they have enough support. So when the youth is going in the streets and they take the parents and they take the ra- grandparents with them, it's, it's a huge incentive for the governments to be more courageous.
1: Thank you. We have one more question, did you
3: have? And then uh, Thank you very much, it's really inspirational and I think it's... Yeah, I mean fantastic. I'm Jacob, I work with the Royal College of Psychiatry in the UK. And I think something that um, some of us are thinking about specifically is this idea of transitioning from models of pathogenesis to salutogenesis. And it feels like it resonates a bit with what you're saying, but I'm wondering this paradigm of thinking about looking at the environment as health promoting rather than looking at ways to increase illness. And I'm wondering about that as a different paradigm shift and if that would be helpful at all in terms of just that being a perspective shift, a subtle one, but an important
2: one. Yeah, it's interesting what you say because I, I was talking with people in the humanitarian business who try to raise money to help children in disasters from hunger or things like that. And if you show a child who is sick and sad, you don't get in e- as much money for the NGO as if you show a child that is smiling and in good shape. We chose the positive emotion linking us to the situation. So, so it's important, absolutely. We, we need to show that the situation is critical and urgent today to act. But we need to show what nature is, how beautiful it is, and why we have to protect it. But then I really add what I said before, it's important to do it in a way that gives the arguments of all the other people, all the different theories, put them flat on the table and tell to the children, these are the arguments of people who think differently. In order for us to understand and also to be able to counteract Uh, the the sometimes crazy arguments we we hear. Uh, For example, uh, to be really practical, the climate change deniers say that they are not going to handicap their economy for the sake of the environment and for the sake of climate change that will melt the South Pole in 30 years. That's, That's the argument. So let's use this argument. Let's tell them forget climate change but use renewable energies because they are cheaper, use energy efficiency because you will save money, use recycling of uh, waste because it's a resource and you will open a new business opportunity, and you make money. By the way, it protects the environment, but let's leave this for the others. You make better money. And you can have climate change deniers who become really active in the clean technologies for other reasons than we would do but the result is what we want to do. So and I think it's always important to, to see what result we, we, we want to have, and sometimes there are different paths to get to this result.
0: So always look for the positive story. Thank you so much. Most welcome.
2: Thank you, bye-bye. Thank you. Thank, you. <laughs> Thank you for your questions also.
3: Microphone's on? No noise. Hello? We're on. Great. Okay, so hello, uh, everyone. Welcome to this next session. I'm Andrew Jack. I'm the Education Editor at the Financial Times. And it's a great pleasure to present a wonderful panel here this morning. So over the next um, an hour and 10 or so, we're going to talk around this question of why climate literacy and civic skill building will solve the climate crisis. uh, and I uh, hope we'll have some time for questions both from you here in the audience, but also others who are watching online. So welcome to all those. And I think my colleagues will try and channel any questions or comments that you might have too. So we're gonna make this please as discursive as possible, but it would be great, perhaps, if we just go round first to each panelist to introduce themselves and their organization and what way you're intersecting, really, with uh, climate literacy. Um, yeah, do you want to start,
1: please? Yes, and I'll pass around the microphone. My name's Kathleen Rogers. I'm president of EarthDay.org. Uh, my organization is the organization that came out of the first Earth Day in 1970. We now are working year-round on many issues, and we are also the organization that um, puts Earth Day uh, together every year. Uh, so from the very beginning, we're, we're now uh, in really in every country in the world, and about a billion people participate in Earth Day. Uh, Long ago, uh, coming out of the first Earth Day, which brought 20 million people to the street, the first thing that happened after the first Earth Day, which was extraordinary, was, A, Congress became very frightened of all those people, and, B, Richard Nixon and Congress, together, created and passed and signed the first Environmental Education Act in the world. And, unfortunately, it languished for all of these years until, quite recently, when all of the people on this panel UNESCO, Education International, the universities, have now decided that it is time for climate literacy, climate education, civic skill building, and uh, jobs. So we're incredibly pleased to be here, and let me turn over to our great partner, Education International, um, and but for both of these organizations, we would not be where we are today.
4: Thank you, Uh, my name is Haldus Olst. I am Deputy General Secretary of Education International, That means I'm also a teacher because Education International is a global union federation where we organize teacher unions around the world. If we count the numbers of who they represent that it counts up to 32 million educators around the world. We have been engaged in quality education and also the terms and conditions for teachers since we were established as a merger more than 25 years ago. We have resolutions from all our Congresses uh, on it, but it really has increased now, and our last Congress called us for action on climate change education. So we have now launched our campaign Teach for the Planet And in April, we also adopted a manifesto, which is a clear call to action, where we define what we believe is quality climate age education. And we also define what do the educators of the world need of support to be able to deliver quality education on the topic in the classrooms. Now pass to Stefania.
5: Thank you very much. I'm Stefania Giannini, Assistant Director General uh, for Education at UNESCO, former Minister of Education, University and Research in Italy. I'm partnering crime uh, with uh, some friends and colleagues in this panel uh, about what? About uh, developing promoting uh, climate education and education for sustainable development all over the world. UNESCO is the organization which actually, since the establishment and foundation uh, uh, through the constitution of UNESCO promoted the idea that uh, education is a big part of the solution to find a new agreement, a new social contract with the planet, uh, among other dimensions. And uh, we are now running this year uh, a very a very impressive agenda uh, through the convening power of UNESCO, through the Berlin Declaration, where more than 80 ministers of education committed themselves uh, in May 2021 to make uh, education for climate change not a nice-to-have, but, oh, sorry, an essential component of curriculum and schooling. Thank you.
6: Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I'm Alonso Aguirre, Professor and Department Chair at Environmental Science and Policy at George Mason University, and also representing as part of the delegation of the Global Council of Science and the Environment for COP26. It is a real pleasure to tell you that the new administration at Mason is fully committed on climate, and our president, Greg Washington, just recently announced that we're going to be carbon neutral by 2040, so it's very exciting on that end. Uh, Our program teaches uh, high school kids, uh, elementary high school kids, I mean elementary students and high school professors on the thousands every year and not only on biodiversity, biodiversity loss, ecosystems, ecosystem integrity and also environmental science but also climate as a a center of this uh, training. That's so vital. We offer master's degrees, PhD degrees in climate adaptation, climate dynamics, So uh, indeed, the new Institute of um, Sustainable Earth is has been uh, just launched last year, is committed to have a center on all the programs as climate moving forward. So uh, we have exciting programs related to many NGOs. We are the few departments in the planet where we link science and policy. And that's the big gap that we're missing because of climate misinformation. We don't have to only do education, but the issue of misinformation is radical that we need to change. And about uh, 75% of Americans believe that climate is gonna be affecting us. Uh, so the deniers are few, but they're, they may be very uh, crippling in many ways. So educa- educating the young ones is key for us. Thank you.
3: Thanks, Alonso. Uh, just for completeness, I'd say, you know, the FT is takes climate very seriously. It's core to our coverage, increasingly so. and. Also, we offer free access to high schools to our content, partly as the idea of integrating high quality news and insights into the curriculum, and I'm particularly interested in um, best practices around the world, from schools, from teachers, from students, what they're doing in the classroom and what they're doing outside the classroom around this issue. But So we're going to um, go, I think, in a minute into, we'll talk a little bit more about where we've got to and think about next steps. But, Could we begin, maybe, and let's just start with Alonzo, because you touched on this, and I'll go around. um, And maybe it sounds obvious to everybody here, but, you know, why is, precisely the question of this panel, why is climate literacy so important? Why do we need to integrate it into our school children and our schools and society around the world? If you were making the case to, unfortunately, the significant number still of climate sceptics, or if I could put it perhaps just this climate, climate... cynics or apathetics, how would you make the case?
6: So, the that we education at the climate level is because uh, not only we need to get rid of carbon and be carbon free, but also the only way moving forward relates to sustainability. We are already hitting a billion. We dramatically decreased uh, our natural resources. In fact, 50% of biodiversity is going to be lost within the next uh, uh, decades if we don't do something about it. And that relates also, the microphone is not working. Yeah, it's okay, sorry. So also, we need to understand that uh, linking science and policy and making a change long term and tell the deniers, as the past panelist said, you're gonna make money if you invest in green industries. If you recycle, if you do positive things, that's the only way, the only way forward. So it's extremely important that children, as was said earlier, will be 30 years to be leaders from now. But is the steps now to be able to adapt this uh, uh, framework moving
3: forward? So Stefania, yeah, so why why is climate literacy so important? For-
5: I think that um, why it's important now, first, uh, this uh, health crisis, this COVID-19, actually highlighted the contradiction of the planet uh, and the way we are, we are living this planet. Uh, High-level standards uh, and increasing inequalities and, uh, and not taking care. Not taking care of each other, not taking care of the nature, and uh, we are very much more aware this year than some years ago. So this is the first, the first uh, answer. Um, the second point, in my opinion, is, uh, without education, without educating not only children for the future, but all you know citizens, to change through better knowledge, through science, through evidence, there their uh, attitudes, their behaviors will not have uh, the real solution to the big issues we are discussing in this uh, COP26. So it star- it's something to start now, it's not a kind of, uh, as already said, uh, nice to have uh, in a, in a broad curriculum where you find a couple of hours in addition to other topics to talk about what climate change actually is, but it's really a whole uh, a whole school approach. So we see interesting, really good practices around the world. We have uh, at UNESCO what we call ASPINET, I mean, uh, UNESCO schools, so to say, which actually uh, concretely implement the principles, the values, and uh, about this topic, I can say they they learn what they live and they live what they learn so in the in the classroom in the daily classroom teachers are well prepared to give examples of how we have to address uh, our own reduction of emissions so it is not simply the cognitive side but it's also the and most importantly the behavioral side so it's important because if we don't change through better knowledge uh, behaviors, and if we don't raise awareness, not only about political leadership, that of course they make decisions, but also in the, in the way we live, all of us, I think uh, it would be a big challenge to, to reach the goal in the next uh, 20 or whatever. So, uh, I think that education uh, uh, for sustainable development, whose uh, education for climate change is, is a part of, I think uh, it's an essential component. And uh, that's why, as UNESCO, we are pro- promoting uh, uh, this as uh, a core part of the curriculum. And we are talking about a green curriculum to be implemented in the coming uh, months, starting now.
3: And we'll come back to some of the best practices a bit later. But but Haldus, please, why? Why is it so important?
4: Yes, and of course, Stefania and Alfonso have already pointed at very, very good reasons for it. I add a couple, and one of them is because education is for the students, and students ask for it. And I think that is sort of the core for me as a teacher. That's where your loyalty lies. And they are asking questions. They're even expressing, some young people, that they are scared. And we, for their future, and education's job is to make them empowered so they feel that they're in control of their future and they actually can do something about it. And for that, they need knowledge. But of course also it's because we educate for society. And societies are debating that. We're sitting here. So we need to make sure that our students have the knowledge and the skills and the capabilities of understanding what's going on and to take their own position and to know how to act to do it. And for us to remember that one of the great suppression techniques out there is withholding of information. So the power of trying to avoid something on an agenda is very large if you succeed. So I really hope you don't succeed in that. You need to discuss it in classrooms, you need to teach it, you need to learn it. Even if some people are skeptical, we may win them across, but at least they are informed.
3: Thanks. Catherine. you've obviously been discussing and following this issue for a long time and you've seen the evolutions, but but why? Why now? now?
1: Well, I'd like to say also, um, it's not going to take 30 years. If we get our collective act together, we can be graduating literally hundreds of millions of educated kids um, who are also taught basic civic skills, another component of our campaigns, all of our campaigns. Uh, so that they're ready uh, to take on their governments, their corporations, their local officials uh, to take control of their own lives. As climate change gets worse, the poor will be inflicted with climate in a way that wealthier nations would not. But on climate literacy, literally, I'm a veteran of so many cops. And it's only been in the last couple of years that we've either been acknowledged as a movement, I call us the poor stepchild of the environmental movement because we've received almost no attention, no funding for years, not just in the US, but globally. So our campaign and other campaign combined things in a way that I think are critically important. We combine not just integrated, assessed, meaning tested climate education, but also civic skill training and jobs training and making those connections for all of us between um, what the realities of climate change is. Um, And it also, as everyone pointed out, once you begin to educate people and you give them the tools, education and civic skill building, you can begin to relieve that anxiety and point them in a direction where they can be activists. Because if one thing I know as a veteran of, I don't know how many cops, 20, 30, whatever, plus other international meetings, um, is I know that the elites meet here every single time. And we're the only, Earth Day's been the only side event on education for a long time, in partnership with other people. But I also know that they've left the people behind. Survey after survey shows that the people are anxious, but they don't have the facts, they don't understand, they're subjected to misinformation. So it's time to move from non-formal education, although that's critically important, and get it in the classrooms.
3: So that's a barometer, at least, of the beginnings of greater focus on it, which is great. Let's now move to the... Where we've got to, I don't know. Perhaps Stefania, we—I think—because you've just come out with, I think, a new assessment, haven't you, of the extent in the curriculum of climate change? Very good. So, so tell us. Maybe you want to pass that back oh, to sorry. Be, yeah, we'll come back to you as well, of course, on this. But, but yeah. So, so where have we got to? How far advanced are schools around the world? The the integration of climate yeah, literacy. Th-
5: thank you for this question. We just g- come out with this uh, partial one hundred countries and uh, the 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 commitment we have. Uh, uh, next year to to have the global uh, assessment of where we are in terms of curricular development and uh, climate education fully included integrated in uh, school uh, programs. Well I have uh, some good news and some bad news. Some bad news uh, that half of the uh, countries we, we assessed uh, don't include any mention any reference to education for environment including climate education and this is and this is not enough <laughs> of course this is a very uh, you know there is very much work to do with member states uh, with uh, governments and uh, that's why we are here and that's why in this cop there is a little bit more language on education and uh, and uh, events and discussion let's the, the good news is that uh, the country profiles we find here, it's a more quality analysis, says that uh, there are some countries that already started years ago to do their job about what? About a national level first having an integrated approach to climate education. Let me put it simply, also based on my own experience as member of the Italian government, which Italy is one of the country where this box practice has been developed. It's not, climate education cannot be only topic developed at the Ministry of Education. It's not enough, you cannot do. You cannot do unless you see as the, you know, uh, nice to have uh, two hours in addition. If you want to have an holistic approach, as you must have, you need to put environment ministers and education ministers. And we have uh, at least uh, 10 countries that are doing that. They are developing this roadmap and can be a very good practice to take as as an example. And uh, that's why also in the afternoon, we we are convening the very first meeting in the COP with ministers of education and ministers of environment who are supposed to commit both to this integrated agenda. And then there is another news I, I would like to highlight. It's uh, leaving you to, to evaluate it's a good or, or bad one. Um, interestingly, uh, countries which are more likely to include uh, education for climate change uh, are those who are in regions more vulnerable and as opposed to countries which interestingly are more responsible for <laughs> for making education uh, for making uh, you know uh, climate change uh, a, a big issue and this is another interesting angle to take then there are something related to teachers maybe uh, how this uh, uh, you know will take something uh, and it's interesting as well teachers uh, we survey, actually 95% uh, uh, do believe that climate education is essential to educate this generation, but 40% feel comfortable to make the job and 20% feel comfortable to explain children how they can reduce their own, to, to, you know, to contribute personally. So when you move to the cognitive side, to the behavioral side, there is a gap. And this is about you know, teaching uh, in a way which is not the way universities uh, in the pre-service training are actually doing. So it's a complex issue, but, but I mean, there are interesting data, so. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Alonso,
3: maybe uh, you, you were talking earlier about climate integration into, all sorts of levels, from K through to 12 and into higher education. Does that resonate from what you see in the uh, U.S.?
6: Absolutely. <clears throat> I came to Mason in 2011 as uh, executive director of the Smithsonian Mason School of Conservation, whereby uh, undergrad students spend a semester with Saint- Smithsonian scientists one-on-one learn about conservation. But we need uh, how instill climate in there. The Smithsonian runs through the zoo, the National Zoo. Uh, before COVID, anyway, uh, used to run these uh, camps for uh, uh, small kids, starting at six, all the way till 11 years old. So those kids will always come every year. But then there was a gap uh, between uh, secondary school and high school. So we created two-week modules, one in biodiversity, another one in sustainability, another one in climate change, with these kids at their 12th grade, can spend two weeks at school with scientists, learning about this, and getting uh, credits for a university. So we began to create this pipeline, moving from very young kids all the way up. And now you see some graduates already working uh, as a master's PhDs on specific climate issues. So it is essential to create a pipeline, if you will. And not only for that, but that has to be linked to diversity, to equity, and to inclusion and that's very, needs to be promoted heavily, and, and we give opportunities to all those kids of all colors to have access to these opportunities. So we are very aggressive in trying to recruit these young students eager to learn, and and not this, uh, very interesting what, what you said, is the gap between knowledge, what you learn, and how you apply it, and why we change our behavior from learning that thrashing is bad, but then you begin thrashing after you become an adult. So it's taking me a long time to understand that, but it's gonna be key to bring psychologists, to bring anthropologists, to bring scientists from all levels, break down our disciplines and work together for uh, educa- education, uh, climate literacy, and of course the misinformation issue. And
3: you're seeing, those still, even students coming at undergraduate level, for example, with big gaps in their knowledge, uh, you think that the school system
6: no, uh, has helped? No. The, actually, the, the, something interesting. I was on a session here with a youth group, a climate activist. They call themselves, and and they mentioned something very interesting called eco-anxiety. And they claim, they all claim, they want to be on the table with the big uh, big kahunas here, because they're a young generation to be a factor. So it's their future that we are playing with, and these all white men, as they refer, decide. Uh, the future of their children too so uh, they clearly stated that we need a positive message for our those children that there are ways that we can contribute individually as a family as a community to solve the problem if they have fun and activities that can see turn things around very quickly it's going to be a very positive way moving forward
3: so Haldis, i think i know um Education International has also done some recent surveys, haven't you, looking at climate literacy and practice around the world. What, what, what are your key findings? How, how, how are we doing?
4: Well, I think what Stefania said, it aligns very well both with our, our research, but also what we hear through our, the policy asks that we get from our members. You know, when you say that 90% of the teachers are positive, this is something they feel is important for education, that resonates that is there. But it also documents that the system around them isn't there. And you need to connect the dots. You need to, to have the commitment from government because that gives the mandate that you can do it, but it also uh, gives the obligation to do it in school. So you, you need to get this uh, systematized. And also, I think that it, it told us that it, uh, it confirms our definition of what quality climate education is. It is about knowledge, but it mustn't stop there. It is about skills, but it mustn't stop there. Because you have to build the higher level of learning. You have to build competence. Now, many countries do have curriculums that are competence-based. But not all countries do. And you have to be able to know what it means to reach that high level of learning. And you have to have the teaching methodology. For teachers to get this, of course, it has to be systematized. Because that is what mandates the teacher training institutions to train teachers according to what their mandate is. And, and this um, unfortunately sometimes costs money, you need to re-educate those of the teachers out there that were educated in the era I was educated, because I don't think the word climate was mentioned once during my teacher training. But there are an awful lot of teachers out there that still have been doing it for as long as I've been a teacher. And it's about tapping into what they have been doing, further develop it, share it, Systematize it because we know that these good examples are out there and we can't let them live in silos Because we need these to be shared so that there is enough ideas or enough ideas are out there For teachers to create the right learning environment given where they are because you can't copy paste You need to be inspired and transform it into where you are and also age-specific because we need to start you know, in kindergarten, or I would say early childhood education, which in my country starts when they're one year old. You know, this is a way of life. So you have to start early. So I see positives, but we need to get all the dots connected. They need to pledge here so we can make them accountable when they come home in their individual countries and start de- demanding the follow-up.
3: So, yeah, do you want to yeah, come
5: back? Yeah. Thank you very much. I, I, I jump at, uh, on this topic, which in my opinion is essential the role of universities uh, in training teachers and the role of changing the pre-service training of teachers i mean there are topics where the silos or i would say discipline oriented approach cannot work anymore of course i'm i mean as a background i'm classical philologist and uh, and a linguist and uh, i'm strongly convinced that if you want to teach uh, ancient greek you must know what you're talking about, and you must have a very robust, solid knowledge of all the literature and the language evolution in that specific field. But if you want to approach, you know, the the culture of uh, uh, the Homer, uh, Iliad, Odyssey, uh, contribution uh, to the Western civilization and culture, you have to have a broader a broader approach to your training and then you can teach better and for climate change is even more because it's a cross interdisciplinary matter so universities must be involved in this uh, change and I don't see so much higher education taking uh, part of the discussion being involved in this dialogue and being ready to change the way and of course there are you know, mm, big impact. If you change the, the pre-service training, you have to change the faculty of, uh, of uh, education and everything that is very much related to the, the, the way universities actually work. So this is a critical point, in my opinion.
3: Uh, Alonso, maybe, Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, uh, Just education. hidden
6: the mail. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, recently, our past president, about two years ago, established with Rockefeller uh, Foundation funding Uh, the Global University Coalition, or network. Uh, It's not totally global yet, it's mostly US universities, but we're trying to uh, involve several people. And most of the symposia that have been run is they relate to the 17 rooms. We developed 17 rooms linked to the sustainable development goals, right? And so each room will discuss topics across the board. And the past conference was about two weeks ago most of the uh, assistants, attendants in the hundreds or thousands were um, undergrads. So it was interesting to see how effective has been very small network yet, but in a way that we can probably uh, have universities have more involvement in teaching the younger generations. It is happening slowly, I hope it's faster, but we're working on it.
3: Kathleen, maybe um, I'm gonna go on in, in a second to talk about best practices. But, but just just to finish the question of um, the trends, and one thing that's quite striking, so we've got this positive momentum, albeit early stages in many ways, but we also have pushback. Uh, you know, I was looking at the US the other day, I think there's a new book that's just come out, looking at this, hasn't there, and about, you know, you see political and ideological influences influencing what's taught, you see certain industries putting out their own educational materials that might not be, let's say, the most How much of a counter-pressure is there, or a break politically and commercially and so on, on greater, if I could put it, enlightened climate literacy, do you think, in schools?
1: Well, I don't even want to just talk about the U.S. context, but I'll start there. I mean, in every other revolution, democracy, the industrial revolution, the tech revolution, the wars, the U.S. government and other countries have put extraordinary amounts of money into education but not the climate change revolution, not the green economy revolution. It's been totally ignored. And I'll give you an example. When in 1957, I think, uh, the Russians put the Soyuz up into space. Um, And think about this in 1957 dollars, the United States Congress immediately appropriated one billion dollars to educate American kids on science and technology. One billion dollars then. We don't have that kind of money now in the United States. And yes, it depends on the country. Uh, Many countries push back for lots of different reasons. Either they don't have the money, or their political problems, or their parties switch constantly, and so there isn't a real opportunity to promote it, spend the money to develop it, work with other countries. I mean, both uh, Education International and separately Earthday.org, my organization, put out a report on NDCs, and not a single country really got a passing grade, most failed. And uh, I think in part it's because the commitments that most countries have around climate change are they're wedded to and driven by an argument about fossil fuels. And so some of the other important issues, again, public participation, civic education, bringing the population along, has been ignored and underfunded. On the political grounds in the United States, as, again, an example, but it's everywhere in the world. Try most of the large countries, China, India. We did 29 roundtables in India where we brought teachers, administrators, and government officials to all, in all 29 states in India. In every case, the government said, yes, we have climate education. The principals, who were a little anxious about sitting there in front of their government officials, kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, well... And the teacher said, no we don't. I don't care what's on the book, we don't teach it. And that's happened in all of our studies in every single country that we looked at. And obviously we need to do more in-depth research uh, on this subject and get work with true educators to analyze the curricula. So it is political in some ways, sometimes it's money. Um, and of course in the US, my final thing to say is we have 50 different states. Like many countries have provincial governments running education, mayors in some cases, states or provinces, but in the United States we have, as most of you know, at least a couple of states that have banned teaching climate education, and so they've struck, for the most part, any reference to climate change out of it. I, th- I think that will change, um, but politics, as long as there are politics around the science and people who just can't move off the status quo, whether they're educators or government officials, it's something human beings are wedded to, the status quo, we hate change, I think uh, we'll be, but, but I see here something very different. I see a lot of movement. I see the influences of international agencies, teachers' unions. In our petition, um, we have, uh, through the international trade unions, we have 220 million trade union members signed on through this association. And if you can look at the bottom of our uh, uh, you know, pull-up behind it, we just got Brad Smith, who's the president of Microsoft, to say, I can't move forward with my company if there's not assessed mandatory climate education in the classroom. So we're slowly making progress, but everything's political. I guess that's the nature of human beings.
3: Ardis, do you want to come back on that? Is, there, is, there, is it just inertia or do you see also pushback?
1: Well, I, I think what you just said, Kathleen,
4: everything is political. And I think political, education has been political since day one. In many ways, we, ha- we have to live in this uh, situation, and it's about uh, trying to convince that this doesn't threaten someone. But there's always going to be some tension between people who want to achieve something or protect something. And what you—the role of education—and that's why it's so important for us to promote public education. That it is—it's uh, something that is to educate the children in a country for the country, not for a specific purpose or a specific religion or a specific economic uh, growth r- reason. And that's to prevent, if possible, also that the content is politically controlled. And yes, in some areas, some countries, this is very threatening because it threatens the economy it threatens people's positions. In the same way we know there are other topics in education that are very sensitive and you try to avoid them because they may threaten your values, your religion, your view of how people should live and be. So uh, this is something we have to live in but we have to get past it. You have to understand that empowering young people is not a threat to yourself. Let them be empowered and make up their own mind. And if you are scared of young people making up their own mind, in my opinion, you have a problem as a political leader.
3: And Stefano, I mean, you, you, must, have, you must have to step through all sorts of delicate political hoops when you're dealing with the member states of UNESCO, whether it's in your surveys or if you're trying to build consensus statements. Uh, how, do you, how do you navigate that? Do you see a lot of significant pushback?
5: Uh, no, I, I, I honestly, I see... Uh positive conspiracy because there are different uh, uh, enabling factors that can push this agenda then we'll see of course it's up to all of us it's up to you know political leaders as well as communities Uh, this COP is already much more advanced about education than the previous ones Madrid and uh, and before UNESCO has been involved since the beginning. I think 2009 has been the very first step uh, to build a platform for climate education and we can measure now the progress. I already mentioned COVID-19. I think we have to realize that it's been uh, shaking the world about a lot of things. And one of the things that we have this planet, we have to preserve and to promote all the behaviors which can help to preserve. There are political leaders who are taking the floor, not only blah blah, but making action and uh, using their incredibly powerful uh, tools. I'm thinking of Pope Francis, who's not talking only to Catholics, but is talking to the world and other political leaders. Convening a big, a big event in Rome last month, launching a new global compass for education where the ecological education, I would say like this, just quoting from the Italian test, is at the very core and is calling leaders to take their own responsibility. And then, most importantly, young people who are taking uh, the leadership of all these issues. I'm not thinking only of young people who are here, which is great and, uh, you know, criticizing, it's good, it's about democracy, it's about going ahead. All the big steps in the world has been done to, through you know, an open discussion and, uh, and criticism to leaders. But I'm thinking of all young people around the world who are now very much more aware uh, of how they can change, they contribute for the common good. It's about uh, car sharing, sorry, very small things. It's about using more public transportation where public transportation are available. It's about taking their own life oriented to this this, uh, approach. Then, member states, to conclude, are critical. Without member states' ownership, we are not going uh, anywhere. And uh, I see a progress, but uh, I already mentioned numbers uh, on this topic that uh, tell us that there is a lot of work to do. Alonso, uh,
3: you, you talked about the enthusiasm, but do you also see pushback or inertia?
6: Uh, I would say at the university level uh, I was brought here, um, uh, one of the issues is the how can we break down disciplinary silos, right? And the problem of education is that from the very beginning when you're a little kid, they're gonna fit you into a discipline into a field and you're supposed to specialize only in biology, math, engineering. By the time you get to university and you're trying to work together, you can't. Why? Because you become a professor and then you have to follow the tenure process. And the tenure process puts you right in a silo. You cannot collaborate or publish in a journal that's not your science, that does your discipline. So we got it all wrong, we have to somehow and I'm trying to work with several structures within the university and breaking down those barriers, have faculty appointments at several units that can work together in, uh, from social science, natural science policy. Uh, and an issue that we haven't talked too much, uh, I haven't seen a COP26, probably in past COPs, because it's my first one, is the issue of corruption and traffic of wildlife. Those are devastating uh, our resources and the issue of corruption goes ac- across guns, drugs, wildlife, and everything else you want. And climate has a major role in these issues. So we need to figure out a better system, starting from elementary school or from home and saying, hey kids, you gotta work together. And how can we integrate programs? You don't have to, you don't to collaborate, you have to work with other scientists from different disciplines and get rewarded and not penalized. So that's the push that I see. Mm-hmm.
3: Maybe how does, uh,
6: so, so Alonso was talking about that silo issue. I mean,
3: how best do we integrate climate into into schools? Should it be standalone? Should it be integrated in everything? What, what does best practice look like? Uh,
4: I have no doubt that you have to have it. Uh, you have to integrate it into everything. Now, uh, countries have different ways of building up their curriculum, but I think we need to challenge them. That the way we always have done things may not be the way we're supposed to do them in the future. And I, I strongly believe that the, you should have a transcutting, transversal, cross cutting topics that all teachers must be able to integrate into their subjects. And it's, it's possible. Climate change education is one of them, or education for sustainable development. They have actually done it in my country. So I know it's possible on paper. And then you have to make sure that it happens in the classroom. I do see, Alfonso's point, that it does get more difficult as you uh, go up the ranks of the education system. Because the, the tradition of uh, teaching outside the traditional academic subjects is much stronger the younger the children are. So perhaps we can learn something from the way that... You, you teach and learn in early childhood education or even on many primary schools that break down the subjects and they teach uh, you know, project-based, they've been doing it for years. So it does exist out there. But yes, the silos are there. And if I may add, we're going to have to challenge many ways of the ways we usually did things. And we haven't even talked about the school buildings. You know, the policies in many countries of gigantic schools, so you have uh, many, many children. Okay, how do they get there? You know, is the way that we are organizing our education climate friendly, environmentally friendly? Are our buildings fit for purpose? We need the buildings. I think the pandemic has learned that you need a meeting space. So it's both about where you meet, how you meet, and what you learn when you meet.
3: Kathleen, what's your sense about this? What does best practice look like in terms of how to integrate, particularly in school level, climate change?
1: Well, again, you know, in other revolutions, um, they did exactly that in many, many countries. Whether it was the tech revolution, they they did silo it. They still teach courses in computer science to graduate from high school in the United States and other countries. But when children learn to read, they learn about what a computer is, or they learn lots of tech language, when they're forming their first impressions of language, they're learning these these important words to get through everything else they're doing right from the get-go, in fact, pre-K. So it's done in other cultures and in other contexts, uh, but I think it is critically important to begin the integration in art, music, science, whatever it is, as you're moving your way through it. I think the other side, and we brought it up, although it's not the topic of Exactly today, but Haldis is completely right. The state of our global schools is extraordinarily depressing. And I'll start in the United States where a new study came out where just the deferred maintenance, meaning the light bulbs, the doors, the windows, was you know, in the hundreds of billions of dollars. And it wasn't just a one-year thing. That's what it was every single year. And so when the U.S. is appropriating money now to green schools for low-income communities, and some people in this room have been in schools. I've been in schools in Oakland, California, in the dead of winter, and it's California, but it's freezing where there was no heating or air conditioning unit at all. They were sitting there with hats and gloves on trying to learn. In other schools, the water coming out of the tap is polluted, lead, has full of lead, and this is the United States, and in other countries, it's much, much worse, if that's even believable. So, And the schools can be the learning experience. It can be the, the building can teach you and we engage with maintenance workers and other people because truthfully they're some of the most valuable people in a school because they keep it running. So this has to be, as Halda said, totally holistic because it impacts the health of our kids, their inability to learn, their depression and view of the planet. Um, And then they leave without understanding the opportunities, because we haven't talked about that here at all, although I'm an education for education's sake person. The opportunities for the green economy are extraordinary. And if we don't do this globally, then a handful of companies will own it. And that's the pathway I can see for where all these big companies are forming, but they're drawing on people from other countries. They're not going to spread the wealth. And in fact, there's no reason why Panama or Botswana can't make their own solar panels. I could do it, looking at the internet. So we have to be able to teach people. We have to inspire them. We have to make them entrepreneurs. And it isn't just education for education's sake. It is to transform the planet. And so we have to make the schools healthy, incubators for entrepreneurs and scientists, um, and then educate the general public so we can create a green consumer movement that will buy the stuff we need to sell in order to keep development moving forward.
3: Stefano, what, do, what are you seeing from your um, your surveys about what best practice looks like? Um, I
5: think that we have national best practices. already mentioned Italy. I can mention Indonesia. I can mention Korea, South Korea, where um, there is a legal framework which can really be developed with uh, local uh, good uh, and 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 funding, which is uh, the other important uh, dimension. Uh, we have uh, also. Local mm, good practices, I mentioned this uh, um, UNESCO network of schools which are committed to, to make the whole process uh, uh, running. It's not uh, simply how uh, climate education has been teached but, taught, but it's about uh, the, 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 the school environment and all these, uh, these dimensions that are critical in my opinion. Of course, uh, to to make to scale up, that's the problem. To scale up, I think we need a- actually two different uh, important dimensions that we are trying to, to, to push uh, for. One is uh, a global roadmap. I mentioned the Berlin Declaration. And uh, now we have 80, more than 80 countries committed to about two things. Green curriculum, that means including in a cross-cutting manner, this topic, and green schools. About the first, I feel more optimistic, honestly, for the reasons already mentioned. About the second, it's about, you know, allocating big money to do that. And uh, also in the north of the world. And uh, and then we have to see the developing countries, which of course are in in a totally different context. But the, the the main objectives we have is from now to 2030 to really fill the gap about green curricula and green schools. And then a the last word, if I may, uh, about the transforming power of education. When we talk about uh, you know uh, SDG four, the added value of 2030 agenda. Uh, in comparison with the Millennium Goals is it really very much about that. It's about uh, having education as the number four at the very core in order to, all, of the, all, to reach all the other objectives. And I think this is, this is very much part of this discussion.
3: And you mentioned earlier, just interesting, that some of the countries that seem to be going further were those that were on the front line yeah. of the climate crisis. Any, any good examples you wanted to cite there?
5: Um, I think a good example of, of, of
3: what some of those countries on the front line are doing to integrate climate more,
5: more. Uh, there are, are actually the Japan just to, to mention one where education for sustainable development is a big priority and that means that from national to regional to local uh, uh, practices there is, a, there is there is a clear roadmap and of course it's about also allocating funds and promoting at global level the same. Sure.
3: Alonso, so what, what, what are you seeing that seems to work that's most compelling as a style of pedagogy, as an approach, integration? Yeah,
6: no, I think that's an important question. In fact, there are some universities globally, like Earth University in Costa Rica, that works sustainable development, climate, biodiversity, and other sciences, all integrated. So all students and faculty live there. And have an experience, as I want to call it, transdisciplinary. We have to apply trans- transdisciplinarity across the board. And it's going to take a whole howl out of all the programs and begin restructuring uh, really concepts, uh, institutes, schools, Arizona State University. Uh, Michael Crow, the president, has received many awards because the way he just came in, took colleges and departments down, and he build these integrative uh, institutes and schools that are f- fabulous and we should follow up with. And I'm sure in Europe are many other models in Norway or, or, or Sweden that are applying that. How we gonna multiply and expand to developing or uh, low-income countries, that's gonna be the challenge. But uh, it is happening. Brazil has a couple of, of uh, instituto pesquillas ecologicas, or the Institute for Ecological Research, has developed a master. It's an NGO. develop a master's degree approved by the public education program in Brazil that works in that way. So we're moving in the right direction, but uh, we need to multiply it quite a bit.
3: And, and because we, I just raised the question of infrastructure, though, for a second. I mean, obviously. Universities as well. I mean, they might they might say, you know, our carbon footprint is nothing compared to the others. But I mean, you know, how important is it to to demonstrate through your own operations?
6: So, Mason, is a, has a problem with infrastructure because we grew from when I came in 2011. We were 24,000 students. Now it's 38,000. There's no spe- we're hiring faculty. They don't have a lab. They don't have an office. If we continue with the current disciplinary silos that I'm telling you about. They want their own office, they want their own space, they want their own lab, and they don't want to share. And so I think I see the lack of space and opportunity, and Mason has quite a bit of money to reduce some many buildings into green buildings now, uh, gold certified by, by several sustainability groups. And, and that's where many universities are moving to. But they want to develop these open spaces for faculty. If you're a young faculty, they're developing these cub- cubicles that are dividers where you can have four or six faculty from different disciplines. And they're totally open. So that way you begin interacting, maybe creating new ideas. We're creating the what we call faculty clusters where we hire faculty on specific topics, like urban design, urban ecology, and uh, urban health. So you get those three groups with different scientists different disciplines begin to work together in specific. So uh, the lack of space I think is giving us an opportunity to develop green spaces a lot faster than we wanted.
3: Kathleen, maybe let's come back to you. You Let's start to think about what next steps could look like, whether it's in terms of policy, resources, new initiatives and alliances. What What's the way forward, do you think? What, what do we need next that would really mobilize, build momentum for greater integration of effective climate literacy?
1: Well, we look at it sort of as three levels. And uh, one is multilaterals, UNFCCC and this process, and all of the multilaterals, whether it's um, UNEP, UNDP, whatever it is. Um, we're also, at that same multilateral effort, looking at funding agencies. So the GEF and other agencies that put hundreds of millions of dollars for conservation or wildlife protection, but don't integrate climate literacy or other forms of environmental education into what they fund, even though they're tremendously influencing local communities, often poor. So we're trying to reform those at the same. So that's at the global, international level. And then for Earth Day and in partnership with lots of amazing people Um, we're now moving into the national level depending on what happens here um, country by country working with education ministries foreign ministries environmental ministries to see if we can't convince them with local staff local people not us from washington to see if we can't make inroads and we have a list of 35 to 40 countries we're starting with because they think they're sort of domino countries they can knock them off one at a time they'll bring other people with them and then lastly um, we really need to do something um, in the United States and with corporations, both things. Um, while I'm always suspicious of the corporate word am Earth Day, after all, um, and we started mostly the env- modern environmental movement and have had nothing but struggles, um, there are really important com- companies that if they speak up and say, we need this to create the jobs of the future, they may actually um, help us. And then the, the last thing, of course, is just money is bringing money into this so the NGOs that are working on it um, and other people, teachers, have the funding that they need to transform the classroom and ultimately transform um, the world on climate change.
3: this what would you like to see?
4: Well, I, I think, like Kathleen said, that it's, it's top down and bottom up. Our first goal here is that we get the pledges. Because if we don't get the, the pledges for, for climate literacy to be uh, integrated into the curriculum, then we have nothing to keep them accountable for. And, uh, but we know that's not a quick fix. Most of the countries did commit to the Sustainable Development Goal 4, including 4.7. And you can say that in a way they've already committed, but they need to understand that they can't work in silos. One ministry needs to talk to the other and they need to do that when they do their budgets too. So we need that and then we need to do the bottom-up work at home. So we need to mobilize our member organizations, given where they are, to have their action plan, how to make their governments responsible, but also what they can contribute to. And, And that's going to be different from country to country. Then we have to do the small stuff. We've already started. Like collecting the good examples. Like uh, having them uh, out there where they can share across borders, uh, across countries, teachers, levels, everything. We started building up that. Building up training what we can do. It can only complement. And I would like to comment on funding. Because yes, we need funding for everything. But I think we also must be careful that we don't create the narrative that climate literacy is more expensive to teach than other items in education. Because if we put the bar so high that the mere talk about cost makes the governments that they find that an excuse to not act, then we're making a mistake. You need funding, yes, but you can do a lot with what you have and at least you must do that. We also heard the Minister from Sierra Leone here yesterday saying that he was going to include now, go home, climate change education in education sector plan. Then he's putting himself on the agenda for, uh, for, the, for global funding. We know through the Global Partnership for Education. So the possibilities here. Last warning. Every time something's new on the agenda, a new market appears. We do not want this to become a market where a lot of people are running in each other's way to make money off education materials and climate change. We want them to do like you said, Andrew, Financial Times does. You provide it for free. And it needs to be quality assured and let the teachers use their professional knowledge, what fits in my classroom for my students and have the opportunity to have access to it for free. We have to work on that.
3: Stefania.
5: Thank you Aldis, this is the UNESCO approach, as you know, <laughs> leading at global level this movement, step-by-step. Step. Madrid uh, there was uh, a small interesting uh, debate on climate education, uh, Glasgow we are here, and today there is the very first meeting and commitment from ministers of education and ministers of environment, and we hope the next COP will be something even bigger. So, this is the global agenda youth being involved in Milan uh, September this year we, we, we joined uh, forces on this uh, sorry my, on this important uh, common share vision and uh, the second point uh, in my opinion uh, is uh, this uh, at national level having member states taking the ownership not only between different ministries, but let me say very clearly, we'll we'll see the change when this topic will be discussed, addressed and leader in the plenary session and where heads of state and heads of government will commit themselves to education, being a big part of the solution. And this has all the other implications we mentioned, not creating a new market, absolutely, but putting education as a pillar of transitional, uh, ecological transition, as well as digital transition. This is our message, this is our action to to make the change.
6: Alonzo. So National Science Foundation and other funders have put an emphasis on STEM, uh, science, technology, engineering, uh, and mathematics. And climate has been kind of left on the side. And so what we're trying to do at Mason, and we added an A, that's for arts, and uh, one of our faculty who created the term STEM in Texas actually, working when he was a faculty there, uh, Padu, um, he added an R for stream, because now we stream everything uh, for reading, the R is for reading. So we're pushing our stream, and we're creating all these uh, high school programs for the summer on streaming. And that climate is now part of those, uh, not only with environment, biodiversity, and, and health. Health is the other component. We didn't touch here too much, but uh, I think health is also first for COP26. They even have a booth here for, for that uh, goal. And so I think that's very important to link environment, health, climate, and the sciences, and uh, both social and natural sciences. And so four things that I wish is transdisciplinarity, meaning, and I tell my students, leave your ego at home and learn to listen. Uh, Number two, uh, capacity building at the local level, with not only students, but with communities. It's extremely important to involve your community in the process. Also, integrative science, Science sciences, Knowledge, knowledge is power, as we say. And so having that apply, uh, integrative scientists, meaning many disciplines coming across, will be fantastic. And finally, what many organizations are pushing is transformative change. From nature-based solutions to, to changing the way we do business, moving forward. And even the non-believers will get in the, in the ball rolling. Believe me.
3: Fantastic. So we've got just a couple of minutes left. Who who would like to come? We've got a question question here, please.
6: Thank
0: you, everyone. That was a really great discussion. Uh, I want to build on what Alonzo was saying um, related to multidisciplinary work and um, the community. And so I wanted to ask how your work connects with non-formal education, because cultural institutions, museums, after-school programs, um, they provide teacher trainings support educators they can be more multidisciplinary we can include the arts we're not limited sometimes by teaching for the test um, I'm from the United States so I'm hearing a lot of these connections about teachers who are really struggling to um, communicate climate change you know and, and I'm from Pittsburgh Pennsylvania Western Western PA like fossil fuel industry is huge there and teachers have students who are um, have kids who are from that community and fossil fuels how you know, uh, built built up the community. So, um, anyway, my point is, multi uh, n- non formal institutions um, can also be really trusted sources of science. Um, so, where are you? How are you connecting with non formal education?
3: Good okay, logic. Like it a go. Whoever. <laughs> oh, sorry. We need you. We
0: need the mic. <laughs> uh,
6: sorry. No, no,
4: Uh, I can start of course, I represent uh, mostly people that work in the formal education system but I think you raise a very important point because uh, the issue around climate literacy or climate uh, education is uh, an issue that we believe should have not only a whole school approach but a whole community approach and that's where you connect both to institutions like museums, uh, NGOs, clubs but also workplaces. Because this is about starting the dialogue between students and workplaces, how they also can be transformed. So I think that is the main entrance point. You don't, you're not going to solve this alone, in the formal education system. Very good point.
3: Maybe one, one other oh,
4: please,
5: yeah. please. No, ju- just a complementary comments from UNESCO perspective. Uh, non-formal education uh, uh, is one of the main mission we have, especially in developing countries. That means working with communities directly. Uh, in Africa first but not exclusively there so we have a lot of examples uh, we can discuss maybe later and uh, another important uh, added value is to have a culture as a strong dimension in our approach to education and that when you talk about community you, you talk to communities you have to really take into account the cultural diversity and the approach they have at local level so this is something which is regularly part of the work we are doing uh, on the ground. And the second point, the lifelong learning dimension. We, we discussed very much about schooling children, of course, is, is the main priority somehow, or the most visible one. But what you are talking about, what you are trying to push uh, uh, about this agenda is also the lifelong learning perspective. Maybe we've got time for just
1: uh... The, the, can, I can, can I just answer that? Can I just answer that? um a hundred percent agreement. And in the U.S. and abroad, we have a big non-formal education coalitions. I would say that the only caveat to that is that non-formal education should turn its focus to low-income communities worldwide. Because I have kids; they went through school, they had a PTA which raised a million dollars, and all this extracurricular stuff they were able to access. The other side of the river in DC, while they do a good job, I mean, they try, and DC probably isn't the world's best example, but there aren't any PTAs raising a million bucks. They aren't able to, and this is true across the United States, provide equitable um, access to non-formal education. So I guess my only caveat to that, and I've seen it over and over again, and I travel all over the world, I've been in 100 countries doing this stuff for a really long time, is that access to non-formal education. Turn your attention to poor people, to developing countries, and don't waste your time on the rich kids.
4: Yeah, of course. Um,
5: thank you so much for the passionate conversation. Um, you mentioned Brazil, and I actually wanted to, I, I've worked with uh, Instituto de Pesquisas Ecologicas. I wanted to highlight something else that happened this week. There's this um, young woman, a girl from Fridays for Future Brazil, uh, which actually on her own initiative um, made this document and went to the state governor of the state of Sao Paulo and got him to sign um, a term of compromise, a pledge actually to include, I think it's an hour or two hours per week of climate education. Of course, it's not a holistic approach yet of including climate into the curriculum, but it's a good step. I want to know what are your views on initiatives like this, really bottom-up from students and how much they can promote uh, climate education throughout the world.
6: No, I already
5: mentioned before uh, the two game changers, in my opinion, and that's why it's so important <laughs> now and here is the the, 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 the health crisis and, uh, and the youth taking the leadership. So we see we very much favor this initiative. And
4: if I may say to go for it, go for it wherever you want. And I would say contact the broader, you know, contact the teachers union. Okay, we'll back you. We won't take over. But I think it's fantastic when youth uh, put forward demands like that.
6: Uh, many, uh, several groups here of youth, uh, uh, they're already organized. In fact, there are several groups already writing, rewriting the policy for COP, the next COPs. Asking what they really want to see in the agenda, so the young generation is taking over.
1: Yeah, just quickly. Um, absolutely, um, Earth Day is working with all of the youth groups here, trying to, you know, provide office space, do all sorts of things to facilitate their own rewriting of their pledges and commitments uh, around Earth Day this year. Many of the groups, Fridays for the Future, Earth Uprising, lots of other groups, came out with various manifestos, and the one thing. I noticed because I'm focused on the issue that ran through everything was uh, seeking commitment of governments to climate um, literacy in a real way and civic skill building, which for them is critical. They want access to information, they want to know how to operate, and they don't want to be excluded from meetings like the COP anymore. Yeah,
3: and what a perfect way to end the voice. The voice of youth uh, should be driving this. So, thank you very much.